everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee, and today our very special guest is Thomas Moore, who will be getting into his formal introduction in a moment. But of course, first, our usual Banyan announcements. First of all, acknowledging that we have people joining us from all over the world, but the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound is in Kitsilano in Vancouver which is on the traditional and unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples. That includes the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Banyan Books is in its 50th year of business, operating as a local and independent bookstore. So we're celebrating that. And I encourage everyone to support Banyan Books and any local independent bookstores. Um, you can go to banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com to purchase any of Thomas Moore's books or any other books or materials on your spiritual and healing journey. Or you can stop into Banyan Books physical location at 4th and Dunbar in Kitsilano and Vancouver. We're open every day of the week. Okay, Thomas Moore, our honored guest today. He is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul, which is now a classic in its genre. Thomas has also written 24 other books about bringing soul to personal life and culture, deepening spirituality, humanizing medicine, finding meaningful work, imagining sexuality with soul, and doing religion in a fresh way. Thomas was born in Detroit. At 13, he moved away with his family's blessing to become a Catholic monk. He also studied music composition. Thomas has a PhD in religious studies from Syracuse University and was a university professor for a number of years. As a psychotherapist, his main influences are Carl Jung and James Hillman. In his work, Mr. Moore brings together spirituality, mythology, depth psychology, and the arts, emphasizing the importance of images and imagination. He often travels and lectures on depth spirituality, soulful medicine, and psychotherapy, hoping to help in creating a more soulful society. He has often been on television and radio, most recently appearing on Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday. Today, he is here in conversation with us about his newest book, which is titled Soul Therapy, The Art and Craft of Caring Conversations. It's a really wonderful book, and I recommend it to everybody. It's fantastic. This book addresses the needs of those providing care to others, which includes therapists, psychiatrists, spiritual directors, and friends or family, sharing his insights for incorporating a spiritual dimension into their work. Says Thomas More in the book, my ultimate goal is to recommend and sketch out a therapeutic way of life for all. So Banyan Books community, please join me in welcoming Thomas More. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ross. I'm really happy to be with you. So as you said, um, your ultimate goal is to sketch out and recommend a way to create a more soulful society. And that's really been 
your life's work, hasn't it? It has. Uh, it has from the from the first work and from from Care of the Soul, which has been thirty years now, uh, published. Uh, I've been trying to find different ways to 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 bring depth, uh, deep value, and imagination to everything we do, every aspect of life, and every aspect of our culture. Wonderful. So just, just for our community who's joining us today, how do you define the term soul? And how is that different from how you define spirit? Uh, there's a traditional distinction between these two, although a lot of people think of them as being the same. Um, the, the way I, the tradition that I follow says that uh, spirit is that element in us or that part of us, you might say, that uh, that wants to get beyond where we are. Uh, even uh, sending a rocket into space is a spirit activity. So when I use the word spirit, I don't mean just kind of a religious spirituality. So uh, people at NASA are spirited, highly spirited. Pilots tend to be spirited getting off the earth. Uh, philosophers who want to think uh, very abstractly and not be uh, limited by uh, our basic conditions of life, our, our spirit. Um, spirit also moves toward the future and it likes speed and it wants novelty and uh, it wants to get beyond where we are to really to transcend. Those are all wonderful things. Spirit's a great thing, the spirit in us. And I feel I have a lot of spirit in me and I, I, uh, I speak in favor of spirit a great deal. But actually, my, my work is more on the, focused on the soul, which is quite different. The soul is, uh, is really embedded in daily life. The things most important to the soul would be family, uh, home, to be in a home where you really feel secure and happy and comfortable, uh, to be in a relationship that, is, uh, that suits you and that makes you feel, again, uh, comforted and secure. Um, to uh, to uh, going to a restaurant, having food and and enjoying it, um, not thinking about it so much. I, I mean, these days you can have health food and good dining at the same time, but at times that these are separated, so people think more about wanting to get healthy from their food than enjoying a good meal. So the soul would be more about the good meal, and uh, and about the friendship. Uh, the long, long tradition of, of uh, literature about the soul uses uh, friendship as the primary aspect or the primary sign of soul. It's very important to cultivate our friends, to have close friendships. That's, that's part of the whole picture. So I think you can see that there's, there's a distinction, although there's no contradiction between these two, but um, they're different. And I wanted to emphasize, I want to in all my work, the soul, because I think it's neglected. Uh, my my, my uh, mentor, James Hillman, used to say that we are a very spirited society. And I think that's largely true. Uh, we, we always want to go into the future and be novel and original. But um, the soul is interested in the past, the way things were done in the past, our own personal past. And, and uh, so it's quite different, but it's very valuable, nevertheless. Right. Now, the other term that is important to distinguish here, of course, is the other 
word in the title. So we've got soul and we've got therapy. So what is, what is the historical meaning of this word therapy? I take the word therapy from Plato. I mean, I, you know, I always go back in time, like the soul would, into the past. And I find a great deal of rich uh, uh, reflection and ideas in Plato, the philosopher who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries BC. That's a long time ago. He wrote a great deal. I mentioned uh, therapy a lot. Uh, he, he also wrote a lot about the soul, but he wrote about therapy. And he says very clearly that therapy means care and service. Those two things. It's not healing. It's not fixing, making better, anything like that. It's care and service. So what I do is I take that platonic, Plato's idea of care, of, of therapy, into my work and into the way I imagine therapy. And I see it primarily as care and service. So that's why I think it's possible for me in this book to speak to therapists, professional psychotherapists, to try to deepen their work, to help them reflect more deeply on the very meaning of therapy so that uh, they can work from a deep place. And also it leads me to think that every person, all of us are doing therapy all the time. When we care for our friends and family members or parents care for their children, care for them in the sense that they listen to them and help them figure things out and, and uh, clarify what's going on in their lives so they can move on more freely. Right. So yeah, this is a book, not just for professionals in the field, but for those in everyday life to tap into that care and service and, and have a better understanding of what it means to be in a therapeutic conversation. One of the things that really I think is pertinent at this time, you state in the book, at a time when psychology is shifting towards its scientific side, I'd like to bring it back to its philosophical, artistic, and spiritual roots. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and why it might be dangerous for therapy and, and psychology to move too much towards the scientific? Well, I don't want to say anything against the scientific approach. It's just been very good. It's been very helpful to give grounding to, to our work. Uh, but I think we've, we've gone a little too far in that direction. And I hear, when I hear people who are trained scientifically, a lot of times they, they disparage uh, talk therapy. Uh, you read that so many, I forget the percentage, a huge percentage of psychiatrists are moving away from talk therapy to... Uh, to medication. And that's the, kind of disturbing to someone like me who thinks that getting two people together to talk to each other is the essence of the therapeutic, a therapeutic way of being. That means a way of being where there's care and, and where we serve each other and help each other get along. It's, I think that's so interesting, you know, that human beings have this capacity. It's not a given, you got to think about it, that that we can talk to each other, have a conversation that is thoughtful and meaningful and go away from it feeling better and maybe having more clarity about what's happening to us. That's a huge thing, that's very big. Now people do pay a lot of money to therapists to get some help and therapists are trained to do that work. And so they can really help you when things are, are pretty, pretty dicey in your life. 
But for, for our ordinary daily uh, confusion and uh, depression or, oh, I don't know, feeling, uh, feeling uh, that life isn't going so well, you don't have much purpose anymore, to be able to talk to a friend who will listen to you uh, and be present to you and you can uh, get up from that conversation and feel you've come somewhere. Maybe not have everything solved, but you've moved along. I think that's an amazing aspect of human life. And that's what I would call therapy in an ordinary sense. Right. What role does, does authentic, deep listening play in that process? Well, listening is everything, you know, for the person who's the therapist in quotation marks sometimes. Um, so the, the, uh, the person who's, who's helping, you might say, um, is someone who has to listen. I mean, the thing is, when you're going through something, anyone's going through something that's challenging and difficult and emotionally uh, hard to carry, uh, you want to be heard. That, that's a big thing. That's a start of getting somewhere, is to be heard, to be able to talk to somebody. It, it not only unburdens you because you don't have to hold it inside anymore. That's a huge thing. But it also, as you speak and talk of what's going on with you, you hear yourself talk and you hear things and you, you have to articulate them somehow. And even in the very articulation of your problem or your issue, there is some clarity gained in that process. So if you have a good listener, uh, then you can, you can better uh, talk about what's happening with you. Uh, the narrative is extremely important. I, I, I have more than one chapter in this book on stories and how to help people tell their story. It's such an important thing. So if you can translate your emotion, your troubling emotion into narrative form, that's already making a big step toward, uh, toward um, feeling better about your situation. Right. So the, the therapist is, is listening to these narratives and you go into some of the things that the therapist needs to be aware of and you, you repeat quite a few times that there's this multi-layered landscape that the therapist needs to be alert to. Can you just comment on a few of the key things that the therapist might, might need to be watching out for in these conversations? Yes, uh, there are a number of things. I'll start with something positive, and that would be uh, that there are often uh, there are often things being said that the person speaking doesn't know he's saying or she is saying. There, uh, so the person describes what's going on with them, and the friend or the therapist will hear, probably hear things that the speaker is not really intending. You might hear a story within the story, a bigger story. You might hear about, oh yes, you know, this, this is true of a lot of us. And in fact, I myself have had a similar experience. And uh, I trace it back to my family and it sounds like you do too, that your family has had a big influence on how you see things and, and how you act in life. And so maybe telling more stories of your family could be useful. That's one thing that a that the person might pay attention to. Another is, I, I talk about myth. Uh, some of the great stories, the great stories in literature or in drama or uh, 
Yeah, the great stories, mythology. Uh, these stories, you you might hear you might hear echoes of those great stories in what a person is saying. Uh, one of the quotes I, I have in the book is from Umberto Eco, who's a novelist and uh, uh, kind of a theoretician about language. And he says that uh, every time we tell a story, we tell a story that's been told before. And uh, that's interesting that there's nothing new under the sun. And the stories that we are telling have been told in literature sometimes. For example, not just the, in the past week, someone said to me, they're trying to describe their depression. And they said, you know, sometimes I feel like Hamlet. Uh, thinking about my father too much and feeling depressed and trying to sort it all out. I thought, well, that's really an interesting parallel. I didn't have to come up with that. I usually would. But the, this person um, herself thought of Hamlet. And that is what I'm talking about. Sometimes there may be a story here, it's Shakespeare's story, that is uh, suggested in the story you tell about your own life. So a therapist, a professional therapist, would be well advised, I'd say, to study literature and know mythology. That would really help them in doing work with people. Uh, but the ordinary person, too, might know things about literature, may have read some, or just heard stories. And if they, listening to somebody, they hear another bigger story, and just refer to it, maybe just briefly. You know, you don't make a big study of it. Just notice, take note of that, and say, "Well, yeah, that's a big thing. You must, uh, you must really have, you must really be somewhat depressed to feel like Hamlet, <laughs> or whatever." You'd probably say something more positive than that. But, um, anyway, the the, uh, the the reference to another story is very good. Another thing I suggest I talk about is the shadow of storytelling. And that is that we romanticize stories a lot and storytelling. We think it's great. And just because a person tells a story, we think that's terrific. But in fact, a person may be telling you a story to avoid letting you know who they are and what they're going through. And I don't mean that in a bad judgmental way. I just mean that we may not be ready to tell the story yet. I think there's a pre-story phase in most people when they're going through things. They're not, they're not ready yet to tell the real story of what's happening. But if they can get gain trust with somebody and feel okay about talking, eventually the story may come out. And then it may not be a misleading story. Uh, there are misleading stories, and whether you're professional or not, it would be a good idea to not to be too naive about listening to people's stories. You have to realize you may be taken for a walk around the block there. And you're not really hearing the, the real story that needs to be told. But then if you eventually do hear the story that is really, really describes what's going on, that's quite a revelation. And I would say that's a turning point, one of the turning points in the conversations. Now, the first section of the book, we've we've covered, I mean, we're just snapshotting. I wish we could cover everything, but um, the first section, you talk about the material, and then the second, the second part of the book, you call the vessel. 
Now, yeah. can you define for, for everyone here what you mean by the vessel and the importance of it? I borrow that somewhat from Jung and uh, people around Jung have, have talk about, they talk about vessel a lot and Hillman did. Uh, vessel, it comes from alchemy. So in, in alchemy, I probably should say ahead of, ahead of time, this is a huge topic. I will be able to just talk about it briefly, but Jung discovered alchemy as a wonderful set of metaphors for what goes on in the psyche. And he, he, he wrote three large volumes of his collective works, all entirely based on alchemical imagery. So it's, it's pretty unusual material. It takes a while to get to know it and feel comfortable with it. But one of the it, one of the very, I think, easy images that he got from alchemy was you need a vessel to hold the material of a person's life. You need a vessel. It's like the alchemist is one of these people in the past who were, uh, there are some contemporary alchemists, but mainly in the past, who would put a lot of material into a glass container and heat it up and watch the colors and really see images. Their, their purpose was to look and have their imagination peaked by that and, and develop a whole idea about uh, how to be in the world through what he saw or she saw in the vessel. So now, now, Jung uses this as a metaphor. We, we need, to, when we talk to somebody, one step might be to create a vessel in which the material of that person's experience can be put and kept intact not leaked. You, know, you don't want a leaky vessel. So what is that vessel? It might be, it might include the place where you talk. Some places are not good vessels. You know, you, it may not be good to go to a coffee shop to talk about really heavy things because you may be easily distracted or you can't focus or some, it could be that somebody might be there to overhear you and you might be anxious about uh, being overheard, that kind of a thing. So the choice of place is uh, part of the vessel making. Another is confidentiality. So if you want a really good vessel, you, the helper, might take a, take a moment to assure the person that you're not going to go broadcasting what you hear, that, you, that this person can trust you, that, that you're, you're trustworthy, you, you will keep this to yourself. That, it's like putting a little bit of clay or cement onto the vessel and making it tighter. It's really a nice, nice way of doing it. There are other ways, just in the, the language you use or your comportment, how you present yourself to the person who's trusting you and with, with their story. There are various subtle ways that you could also create that vessel. And I think that's, it's just one aspect of the whole process, but I find that image to be very helpful in starting out the therapeutic conversation. One of the, one of the chapters that I, for me was really fascinating was the chapter on the symptom as a vehicle of change. So how can, how can all of us understand that principle and use our discernment around what you call uh, following the symptom? How does that work? Uh, well, this I get from Hillman mainly and uh, Patricia Berry who worked with Hillman. Uh, their idea was that, uh, the, that we want to, they used to say, stick to the, 
symptom, honor the symptom, go with the symptom. That's what they would say, go with the symptom or go into it, rather than try to get rid of it. Uh, so when you do that, you might find out what that symptom is trying to show you. It's rather complicated and twisted up because these symptoms we have are much more complex than we think. The example I give in the book is of a, of a man in San Francisco who uh, whenever, whenever he went out on the street, he would give money to the street people who were begging and asking him for money. And by the time he got home, he didn't have any money left. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't not give money to people. That was his symptom. He, he, he had to, he was compelled. He had a compulsion to give money away, even if logically he knew that this is not good because he didn't have that much money to give away. Now, if you're a helper as, or the person listening, the therapist, um, you might be tempted to say, to try to help the person stop giving away his money. That's the symptom, you know, let's get rid of that. But if you're a, a, a craftier and more subtle therapist, you listen to that and what you do is you hold the symptom. You don't, you don't speak against it. And you don't try to get away from it or get rid of it. Instead, you explore it to see what it is. And uh, in this case, I write about this, I explored it with him and he, he brought up stories of when he was a child and was taught in school, he was taught by some, uh, by some uh, religious people, nuns, uh, that you should always be generous and always give to the poor. And somehow that got into his head and he felt this is what he has to do. This is So that story helped us um, explore the symptom and hold it rather than get rid of it. And eventually this man discovered that by compulsively giving money away, he wasn't really being generous. In fact, deep down, he, he hated it. He didn't want to give his money away. That was the whole point. So we discovered in holding the symptom there that it was actually the opposite, that it was expressing the opposite of what it appeared to be. And what he did was discover then, explore for himself in the conversations, he found that he was actually called to be generous. Uh, that his destiny was to really give himself to the world, to get a, a job and a vocation that was really um, a, a service, a service position for the world, for humanity. That was much bigger than giving all of his money away to people on the street. But the symptom pointed to his destiny. And if you, and Hillman used to say this all the time, get rid of the symptom and you've lost your future. You know, you've lost your knowledge of who you are and what you're capable of. So preserve the symptom, don't just try to get rid of it. The symptom in that moment is not as important as you think. Wow, so that's, I mean, for people speaking to friends, that can be really important, can't it, to understand that principle? It's, it's the key. To me, it's the key to the whole thing. And for friends, especially because trouble is if you're a friend, you know, you're not, you're not trained to think this way, but I'm afraid that a lot of therapists aren't either. But um, you've, got to, uh, you've got to be subtle. And uh, it's, not a, it's not rocket science, you know. I just described that in about 30 seconds. And I think you can go from there and get the idea very quickly. 
And so when you're talking to somebody, all you have to do is have some awareness of this principle. And, uh, and you, you will not just be automatic. That's the trouble with the friend helping a friend or a family member, is that you might just unconsciously or without thinking about it, without having considered it before, just, just say what comes to your mind. And that's not always the best thing. A lot of people, when they're asked to talk to somebody, all they do is give advice or describe what they would do or what they did in the past. That doesn't help too much. You know, it's, it's like putting your life onto somebody else. So there are things to learn, not a lot, but a few things to learn that will help you. I tried to put the main things in this book. It's, this is not a how-to book exactly, but it is a book about trying to bring to mind some things that would be useful if you're working with your friends and family. Yes, and I gotta say, it, it is really fascinating. I, I couldn't put it down. Uh, I mean, obviously you're at the, you've been writing for a long time and the way you present these things is so accessible and useful, I think, for professionals and lay people. One of the interesting things, I mean, based on what you're just saying, I th it brings me to think about your points on transference and counter-transference. Can you illuminate those points for us? Well, I'll try. That's, now we're getting a little more into the intricacies, but it's right. not, again, it's not rocket science. Transference is a word, counter-transference, are words used by uh, psychoanalysts originally and often used by, by therapists, professionals. And uh, I'll tell you what it means kind of simply first, that transference simply means, the way most people understand it, it's the transfer, I'll use that word, it's the transfer of patterns of relationship and, and fantasies about the people, images about people, stories in your mind about them. You, like for example, you might transfer, this is a classic thing. You have a certain way of relating to your parents, your mother and your father, probably separately and differently. And you meet somebody later in life, maybe decades later, and there might be something very simple, very small that reminds you of your parents. And so you begin relating to this person by bringing over, transferring the patterns that you had in childhood to this new person. I think we all know that that kind of thing can happen easily. You just, every day, I think you have transferences. You meet somebody and you relate to them really as though there is somebody else. And if you think about it for a minute, you'll, you'll notice that what you're doing, that you're actually bringing over some habits to someone new. And uh, the poor person you just met doesn't know that you're, you're transferring all these things. But I explore it more like as Jung did, which is a little more subtle. And that is, and Hillman as well, of course, that, that's, uh, that actually we're also transferring when we're children. <laughs> the original is not as pure as it looks. So what we're transferring more is, are these these figures, I would call them in my work, archetypal figures. They're figures that are, that like let's say the figure of the father. What is happening, this is the way Jung describes it, is that in childhood, we are meeting the, the, the father in a general sense, the archetypal father, in our father, in our personal father. And then you grow up and you go to school and then you meet the father figure, in a teacher, 
So the transfer there, this is kind of a little bit subtle. The transfer is the archetypal image that is moving, not just taking a personal experience of your father and moving it on. That's where my work and the borrowing Jung and Hillman is a little different from the classic way of looking at it. We are, we are transferring the archetypal image, meeting it in other people. So you're saying that some of transference is inherent in the child and some is learned. Is that, is that right? Some of it, yes, I think I'm saying that. Yes, that's right. That's what I'm saying. That, um, that's a good way to put it. So in childhood, we encounter father in a big sense, in our fathers, our personal fathers. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. You know, we think our fathers are like super people. And we don't really know them as persons too well, but we do, we experience this great father. We all need fathering in our lives beginning from beginning to end. And we meet figures who give us that fathering. So we, that's what I'm saying. The, in childhood, we meet the great fathering source, but we meet it in our father, perhaps in the best of circumstances, we find that really good father. And um, so when we're, when we're older, the whole kit comes with us. The, our personal father gets mixed in with this bigger father and we experience it time after time. As I say, you are probably going to experience transference today sometime. You're going to meet somebody. Somehow you're going to probably find, if not the father figure, some other. It could be a lot of, it could be, um, I don't know, it could be the creative artist that you encounter. And that gets transferred to somebody else. So you meet someone and you find out that they're a, they're a painter. And right away, you don't even relate to them, who they are. You don't even know who they are, but you now think of them in terms of through the filter of your own thoughts about what a creative artist is. So you've transferred then to this situation and to this person from somewhere else in your life, in your experience, you've transferred this creative artist figure that you may hate or you may love and you bring it to this new person. So this, this is kind of a subtle aspect of talking to people. If you don't know the transference is happening, you can get into a lot of trouble. It's like you make a lot of assumptions that are really not accurate to this person. And, and the way it's usually described is that a lot of this is unconscious, most of it. So you're talking to someone and something they say maybe, or some way they are, uh, causes a reaction in you. That's the counter-transference. There, and and you or you react to their unconscious stuff, and uh, you don't even know you're doing it, and that's why it's so valuable. This whole theory of transference. I didn't want to make this book too complicated and theoretical. It really isn't. It's so simple. I'm a little embarrassed. You know, I I usually write more formally. It's, it's really trying to be as clear as I can, and. Uh, but I did want to include things like the complex and transference. I think those are the two, maybe vessel too, but the technical terms that I brought over for this book, but I, I, I didn't do a whole lot of other technical things. But I thought these were the most important things to know when you uh, are talking to somebody. Right. Can, can you tell us a bit about what a complex is? Sure. A comp easy. <laughs> <laughs> 
A complex is uh, Jung. Jung was really good. Good. At, he wrote so much about complex. He, he considered calling his whole psycho psychological system complex psychology at one point. It's so important to him. What it, he says, it's a fragment of the psyche, a fragmented psyche. It's like a slice of your psyche that um, becomes autonomous. It's like something in you, a lot of emotion and uh, thoughts and your history. It gets kind of separated. It's no longer on your, under your control or uh, integrated into your personality. It's by itself. And we feel that. That sounds a little you know, technical, but they actually feel these things, I think. that The one I often talk about, because everyone does, is the inferiority complex. So you might, any of us might, today might be talking to somebody and suddenly something is said and we sink down into our inferiority. And we don't want to be there. We don't like it. We'd like to get out of it, but there's no way. Jung says that this complex is autonomous. It has its own will. It's like another person in us. It's like another person. So there's this inferior person that comes to life every now and then. And no matter what you do, you can't, you can't hush them up or get rid of them. Just you get those inferior feelings. I get it sometimes, I, you know, when I'm talking to people who are either have read everything in the world and they ask me if I've read a book and I have to keep saying, no, I didn't read that. I didn't read that. <laughs> I sink down into my inferiority. That's a complex. It's not, it's not reasonable. All you have to say is, no, I haven't read that. But no, I get into this deep feeling of inferiority. I should read that. Or have you traveled? I'm, this I also feel often for myself. People say, how many times have you been to France? Okay. I visited there for five hours once. <laughs> you know, people who love to travel, you know, and make a big deal of it. Um, I, I feel inferior because I feel I should, I should be somebody who has that experience. You see, it's, it's, it's not reasonable, but it comes over you. And you can see how maybe some people are more uh, liable to feel that inferiority and some are not. They might have a different kind of major complex that comes along frequently. There are lots of them. So uh, that's an example of the complex. And a lot of times what bothers people is their complex. Uh, another one that's very frequent that I run into is when people say, I, I'm not independent enough. I can't speak my mind. I just sit there and I'm quiet when I wish I could just say what I want to say. I want to be strong. I, I should be stronger, they say. Now that's a situation where I go with a symptom. I go into their weakness and often discover that they don't know how to be weak. And to try to be strong is the wrong direction to go. They're already strong somehow. Uh, so anyway, that's the complex. It's a very interesting aspect of Jung psychology. And I bring it up in the book because I think, I think knowing about complexes would help somebody, anyone, help talk to someone about things that were important. Yeah. The fourth, the second to last section of the book is titled Therapy in the World. Um, and you have this, this vision uh, you speak of about informal therapy in the world to help create a more soulful world. Um, can you give us a little bit of an understanding what you mean by uh, 
informal therapy in the world or a therapeutic kind of world? I'll try. Okay. I mean many, I mean several different things, but I'll try with a few of them. So one thing I have in mind is that if you got this idea that it, that our world is really, we know, don't we? Our world is in trouble. Politically, there are so many big threats coming to our world and we're not dealing with them well. Uh, what are we doing? We shout at each other. Politicians shout at each other. People who disagree shout at each other. There's a lot of that going on. That is not therapeutic conversation. So I'm suggesting that we could, if we understood this concept, Let's, let's say a politician could realize that this job is really a therapist's job, my job, a, lot, a big part of it. Part of my job is to talk to my constituents in a way that, that uh, gives them some clarity about their strong feelings, that helps them not be acting out all the time, of being able to articulate what's going on with them more and then maybe come up with some real solutions and not be so polarized from people who seem to disagree from disagree with them. I mean, that's therapeutic. I can see the therapeutic politician or the business uh, leader. I, I've talked to a lot of people who are leaders in business and perhaps owners of businesses. And a lot of times they're very, very concerned about their employees and the people under them. And they would like to be able to talk to them and help them out. Like they'll tell me, my employee uh, is drinking too much. And I don't know how to talk to him myself. I wish there was some way I could do it. I've been in hospitals where hospital administrators say the same thing. We have a vice president who's really good. He could really help our hospital a lot. But he doesn't know how to deal with people. And I wish I could talk to him in a way that I could tell him that without him getting defensive. That, in other words, in my language, I wish I could talk to him therapeutically. And so, see, I see this whole, the whole, everything we do in the world, if we could realize that one of the categories of conversation is therapeutic, not in any highly technical sense, now I'm going to be play therapist now, or that I'm going to be, I'm going to be this person's therapist. And, and that's nothing like that. Thera it's the adjective or adverb, therapeutically, that's how I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk in a way that brings care and, and offers some clarity and comfort to the situation. And I think that would be, it would be terrific if uh, people in positions all, that, all throughout society, if, if they had this in mind, just take a, you know, a two-day course in this, you know, and just get a few ideas about how to be therapeutic. I think it would help a great deal. Do you see this kind of training um, getting into the schools anytime soon? No, but I wish it would. <laughs> I don't see that happening. I don't see any any movement toward it. Uh, there have been attempts to try to do some, things like that. Uh, I remember once when I was uh, in my 30s, um, there was a program called uh, Values Clarification I thought was very good at helping young people uh, sort out their values in school and was used in school sometimes. But a lot of people got upset about it because they, they, have their, they, they think they should teach their values to everybody and not help people clarify their own. So um, that, that didn't work. And that's the problem. Uh, a good therapist is not telling people how to live. 
a good therapist is helping the person clarify for themselves and find some some ease and comfort within themselves and, and to be able to deal with life better. That's what they're doing. They're not telling them how to live based on the therapist's own philosophy of life. It seems like one of the fundamental understandings, and you you highlight this in your book, um, is polarization, this, this extreme polarization we're seeing in so many parts of society. How can we understand the ill effects of polarization more? Well, it's pretty obvious the, how bad it is because it, it leads toward uh, violence and, uh, and lack of understanding. Uh, in, in the case of people here in the States, it's, it leads to uh, inefficacy of government. You can't accomplish anything because the one side is trying to prevent the other from doing anything. So that's really a bad scene. It's a bad situation. The thing that I think needs to be explored is how do you deal with polarization? Uh, how do you get out of, one of the big questions a lot of people have is, how can I be talk to somebody who thinks very differently from me and not increase the polarization? Can I do that? That's really a, that's a really good question. I think it's possible. It's not easy at all. Uh, one way that has come up uh, uh, previously in previous years that I, I've seen it is where people are on different sides uh, theologically. They have different religious ideas. And that's still going on. But uh, the question was, how can I talk to my family because they disown me because I'm, I don't believe what they believe? And I, I can't even talk to my brother or sister because of this religious difference. What what can I do? Well, you know, there. Are, I think there are ways to ease the, it's not easy, but to ease the polarization. One is to try to appreciate something in what the other person is saying. There may be something important there. Like for example, with the, with the uh, religious fundamentalist, I'm not a fundamentalist myself, I'm just the opposite, but I see that fundamentalism keep preserving something. I understand the anxiety behind it. Uh, we're, we're becoming a fully secularized society. I don't think good. So I see the fundamentalism as preserving in some way and I can appreciate that. Besides, I can de dip into myself and find uh, conservative elements in myself. I have to look a bit, but I can find them. Uh, that helped me then not feel quite so divided and separate from the other. But I can't wait for the other person to change. I'm the one that has to be able to work harder to turn up the activities and be more subtle and see if I can be less polarizing. I think that's, that's the trick. So that's also part of the therapeutic life because what, what happens if you're a therapist or if you're a friend helping a friend and what comes up are some real differences in values. Well, if you really still want to help your friend, you've got to find some way to deal with those where you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to, to surrender to the compulsion to express your values. That's a compulsive thing to do. You don't have to do that. You don't have to let everyone know where you stand. If that's where you are, you're probably not too confident in where you stand and you have to, publicize it all the time. So I would say in that case, you know, uh, people ask me what my philosophy of life is. It is lighten up, 
lighten up. Uh, don't be so heavy with all these things. Okay, so someone disagrees with you. It's not the end of the world. You know, try to have a conversation. If not have a conversation, try to have some way to make a human connection. I've talked to people who think you have to find common ground. I always say you can't find common ground most of the time, but you can find your common humanity. You can, you can do things together. You can find a way to be together where you don't have to always be in the argument about the things you disagree on. Wonderful, thank you. If we can, I'd like to uh, address some of our um, questions from the audience who's here live. Um, from Gary, he asks, can you say something about the call of the soul or soul's purpose and how you might incorporate that into your therapy, especially with someone who struggled with this whole notion of call of the soul? If, if I understand correctly, if you're talking about what am I destined to be in life, you know, what is my call, calling in life? Um, you have to understand, first of all, this is so important for if you want to be therapist in any form at all, uh, that we each have our own calling. And you have to be able to understand fully that another person is not you. You have your destiny in life, and this other person has a different destiny. I find it very hard to imagine someone being a therapist for someone, speaking therapeutically, if, if they demand that everyone follow their values and their vision the way they see life. That's not being therapeutic. Uh, so calling is, is really, I think, a real thing. Uh, I know people, it's hard, to, it's a word I don't use much because some people think it's religious and that I'm called by God or by some something outside of life. I wouldn't take it that way, although that's fine if that's how people uh, you know, you know, deal with it. Um, I would rather think of it at least that we feel called, that we are, are called, that we have a destiny, that I'm, you're destined for something. This has really affected my own, I'll talk personally, my own life. Uh, I never, ever in my early life thought I'd be writing books about the soul and talking about them. That wasn't even, wasn't even a thought, uh, never occurred to me. So gradually over time, my destiny has been revealed to me and shown to me. I don't, that's not quite finished yet, I think, but so I don't know if there's more to it, but Right now, it's quite clear what my destiny is. It is to write books about the soul and to talk about it to people and, and to try to do something for this world we live in, to try to offer some service to this world that way. That's, that's my, my destiny. I don't know anyone else who would have that particular destiny, but someone might have another one. Some people have a destiny. Let's say they have, like mine, to be a writer, but their, their destiny is to write um, comedy, uh, funny books. I liked, I love to read them myself, but I couldn't do that. And it's not what I'm called to do, but it's what they are. And so as a, as a, a thoughtful friend, if they came to me to talk, to talk about that, I would be very open to their destiny and try to help them with it. So this, I think, is one of the key issues in talking about calling. 
the soul, I think, does, in fact, you might say, to give us a call in some way. You, you read the signs around you. You listen to what, uh, what people say. Uh, I had a professor in, uh, at Windsor. I was studying at the University of Windsor Theology. And he, he came to me one day and he said, he said, Tom, I think you should get a PhD in religion. And I said, I said to him, I said, I, I hate religion. I don't want I don't want anything to do with it. I was a monk for 13 years. I've paid my dues. I've done it. I want to do something else. And he said, no, no. He said, you can go, I know a place you can go and study and you'll be very comfortable with it. And he was right. I went and got a PhD in religion, and I it's the best thing I ever did in my life to do that. But uh that is a that is a calling, you know, it's kind of a calling that. I had to listen to this man, this professor. I heard what it was, and the way I think of it for myself, given my particular religious background, I feel that people speak like angels. They're they're speaking like an angel to me, saying, "Go and do this." You know, this it's time to do this, and I listen that way, and I've done that all my life, and. It, it involves some chaos, but it also involves coming to feeling very good about where I ended up with it. That's great. Thank you. Now, Lindsay asks, regarding the hidden positive value, can you give some hints on what that might be in a person whose focus is on what is missing? This has created constant lack in all areas and lack of life direction. Where is the hidden positive value? Hidden positive value? Do you know I, what she means? I believe she's talking about um, following the symptom and finding the positive in the symptom. Okay. So in this case, it's they're focused on what is missing. It's created a constant sense of lack yeah, I, in all areas. I, yeah, right. Well, when you do this, what I was saying to pay attention to your symptom, it takes a lot of imagination and patience. It, you don't get a, a revelation suddenly, usually, uh, from it. But I think if you use your imagination and talk to friends about it, and uh, um, along the line, I think you begin to get some insight. I, I feel myself that insight is the most valuable thing in the whole world. If you get an insight, that's it's worth so much. And you might get an insight from talking to someone about this situation when you, if you can talk about it openly and have your mind open to it. And so the way I suggest it would be if you feel that there's something missing in your life, then what you want to do is not try to fill it in with things so that you don't feel like you're missing and have a lack, but rather you feel the, the missing you feel the lack, you get into that more. And the more you dis- discover the roots of it or where you've experienced that before, all that kind of thing, not, not finding answers, but trying to explore all the things that, all the memories that might go into it, then that helps, that, that enriches the material of your lack and missing, feeling of missing. And when you do that, you begin to see more what it is and, and then you have an opportunity to do something about it. Fantastic. Tracy asks us, here's something that Tracy, just so you know, Thomas does cover this in, in the book, Soul Therapy. 
Um, she asks, what are some good things to keep in mind to respect the souls of children and youth for teachers? I want to emphasize listening as a skill. Also talk about our emotions and learning to be skillful at identifying and honoring our emotions. So I, I do address this book a little bit anyway. You could write a whole book about each one, but I do address how therapists can speak therapeutically and how teachers can speak therapeutically. I'm very, very careful not to confuse the role of, of a teacher with therapist. They're not the same. I understand that very, very well. But still, a teacher can speak therapeutically in this deeper, subtler sense to, to students. And parents can realize that once in a while when they're talking to their child, they could speak therapeutically not just trying to train them and tell them how to be and what to do, but maybe help the child clarify what is going on with them and help them feel comfort when they, when they don't uh, sense it around them and it's so important to them. So I think that, uh, yes, listening to the child is, is the first thing, isn't it? To really hear what they're saying, but even more than that, to hear beyond it. So a child might very well uh, uh, be saying something may, maybe very angry and shouting and screaming and uh, tantrum or something. And I think the job of the teacher and the, and the parent in those cases is to be able to hear beyond the obvious, beyond the literal uh, expression of the, of the young person and try to say, what's going on here? Are they, are they feeling neglected? Um, are they at a, at a time, is there something going on in their life elsewhere that is really making them upset? And this is what they know they can be upset with you. You have to look past, always look past, not be literal with your child, especially with children to realize that they are often speaking indirectly or they have another thing that is really going on with them. And you have to have the eyes of Superman to be able to see through the literal to the to the deeper issue that's going on. That I would call therapeutic listening. And if you can do that, you then you really can be of use to, to the child. Wonderful. We have time for one more audience question. This is a really nice one from Monica. She says, can you say something about the soulful listening? to symptoms that are somehow scary to the one who is experiencing them, like depression or suicidal thoughts, and maybe also to the one who is witnessing the other's suffering? Um, I, not, I may not be able to answer that question really accurately for you, but as best I can, uh, I think that uh, when, when the conversation is very emotional and uh, uh, where there's a lot at stake and you're not just relaxed and having an easy conversation with someone, uh, those, that, those situations are, are quite demanding. Uh, one thing that, uh, well, there are a lot of things. The one thing that I would recommend is be able to look into yourself and find your own calm. Not you don't want to pick up on the other person's anxiety or uh, emotion. Emotion, as Jung says, emotions tend to be contagious. 
and especially when they're very strong, it's so easy for you to pick them up and go into them and be emotional yourself. Uh, that's the time really as a friend or as a therapist to, to, to um, rely on your own, what I call in this book, serenity. I have a chapter called Serenity. Uh, your own serenity, your own, your own peace with yourself and with the world. And don't, don't be susceptible to the emotion that's surrounding whatever it is going on. I don't mean to deny it and repress it. What I mean is to be serene and to be, to be, um, to be okay with yourself and, and then deal with the other person out of that, that good place that you are in. That's why, you know, you, you use your, your person in this work. You, you use your person. You don't need tricks and you don't need uh, um, um, methods. What you need more than anything else is yourself as a person who have discovered your own serenity, your own, uh, your own peacefulness with these issues and with various issues in life. It really helps a great deal to do that. And the other thing is, uh, we talked about uh, counter-transference before, what this means is that when someone has a lot of emotion going on, or they may be saying things to get you to really pay attention to them, they may be saying outrageous things, threatening things, or threatening themselves as in suicide. Um, if, you, if you get caught up in that emotion and those manipulations, which is what they are, if you get caught up in those and fall for them, you are not doing anyone any good. You've, you've, got, to, you've got to stay clear of those things. And uh, again, find it within yourself not to be, uh, not to be outside yourself, not to be uh, pulled out of yourself in those situations. That's great, thank you. Thank you to everyone in the community for sharing your questions. Um, and I'd like to just ask you before we part ways, Thomas, what, I mean, you've been writing and doing this work for, I think, over 35 years now, haven't you? Uh, um, probably more, yeah. More, right. And, and uh, I, I heard you say in one interview that you really think of yourself as a writer more than anything. I do. I'm wondering, I'm wondering what, what projects you have right now that you're working on. Oh, that's a really good question. I have several books finished. Uh, <laughs> on my desk or hidden away, hidden away. Uh, I'll tell you what they are. One is a, a book that I've entitled Tales of Emptiness. I'm very interested in emptiness in uh, Eastern uh, thought about how important it is to be, not to be uh, overly attached to everything we say. Uh, I think it helps me a great deal to, to that emptiness where I, even today talking to you, I don't feel, I don't feel like I have to convince anybody of anything. You know, I'm just, I'm exploring things with you. But you hear people sometimes as though their lives are at stake and they have to make sure you agree with them or understand. It doesn't make, I hope, if you get a few thoughts from today, that'd be great. And if you don't, maybe next time. That's empty. So I've written a book called Tales of Emptiness, which is all ready to go. And we'll see what happens. I've also, I also write fiction. And uh, I've published only one book of fiction so far, but I have a novel. I have some detective stories that I'm interested in, and I have one that I that I like right now that I'd like to consider publishing. It's called the um, Portobello Papyrus, and it's about uh, the underlying theme. Even though it's a modern contemporary uh, 
detective story. The underlying theme is uh, the possibility that Jesus studied um, with a Buddhism in Egypt, which I think is very interesting, you know, thought. I'm not totally sold on it, but I think it's very, very interesting possibility. So I explore that theme in this novel. It has to do with, a, you know, a detective tracking down a murderer. Uh, uh, internationally. So that, to me, it's interesting. It's an interesting novel and it's fun. It's fun to write and I hope it's fun to read. But the underlying theme, this is what I think about the fiction I'm writing, is that the underlying themes will be probably theological. Right. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for filling us in on that. I, I look forward to seeing both of those books coming out. They sound great. I, I doubt if you'll see the fiction, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Okay. <laughs> Soul Therapy, everybody, by Thomas Moore, our honored guest today. The Art and Craft of Caring Conversations. It just came out in May 2021. A really great book. You can get it at banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Please support your local independent bookstores. And big thanks to Jacob Steele, our producer for the podcast and all of Banyan's events. He does a fantastic job. Thanks to the owner of Banyan Books, Colin Limworth, for everything that he does. And all the staff at Banyan, uh, front and back of the store, who do so much for the community. Thomas, your website, I believe, is thomasmoresoul.com. Is that right? That's right. thomasmoresoul.com. Okay. And more is M-O-O-R-E, thomasmoresoul.com. A big thank you for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thank you, Ross. I enjoyed it very much. And thank you, Jacob.